what we're going to do today, we're going to discuss something biblically that seems so obvious that you're going to say, why spend the time? We all know this. But the truth is, my experience is that is an assumption that it doesn't really bear out. So, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. We're going to look at 21 to 31. We're going to talk about how do we get accepted by the God of heaven and earth. And then we're going to examine an alternative view of that that is quite popular in Calvinistic circles. We're going to talk about that, and we're going to examine it in Scripture. But more important than that, we're going to just make sure we understand one of the most basic truths of the faith. How do we get accepted? Because that's what salvation is all about. How can a holy God accept sinful human beings? And so let's begin. We're going to look at 21 to 31. That'll be our jumping off point, And then we'll wander to various places. Now, you can ask questions at any time. We do this at our gathering, our fellowship. We've done it for 30 years. So you can ask questions. Just raise your hand. And then you, as you begin to talk, I'll evaluate whether your comments are worth answering. <laughs> and then we'll, as we talked about yesterday at the conference, that if uh, you know, people say there's no such thing as a stupid question... That's not true. There, there is such a thing. And I, but I will not outwardly tell you that. I'll think it, but I won't tell you that. Okay. Of course, in the book of Romans, the first chapter, the first two chapters, and the third up through verse 20 is setting the scene for why everybody desperately needs a Savior. Jew, Gentile, he blows away the objections. And now we, we begin with 321. He says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Now, what does this mean? That is, you need to paraphrase this a little bit. The way to be accepted by God has been revealed. And it has nothing to do with law-keeping or works. It has nothing to do with it. Uh, and it's always been this way. So when it says, this has been made known to which the law and the prophets, that's, we think in terms of the Old Testament, they are described in those terms, law and prophets. It's always been this way. Because God doesn't change. But... When he says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God, that's the key. So you could say salvation is how, if I can achieve the righteousness of God, I'm home free. If I can achieve the righteousness of God. So then we ask the question, what is the righteousness of God? Now, you would think that's so simple. You should hear the answers I get from fellow pastors. It is not so simple. So what we need is, we need first, we need God to provide a commentary on this verse, on this passage, on this concept. So we know God has to interpret his own word. We want to avoid guessing. We're not allowed to do that. So we have to... If we say this means that, I have to prove it to you by Scripture in context, and you have a right to question whether you're going to buy it. You know, it's nice to think that God gave me a message to give to you today, but that's nonsense. I'm giving you my best take as to what I think Scripture says, and your job is to examine it. And we're supposed to give you the opportunity to question because... You shouldn't buy it just because I say it, even though we know it's always correct. But that goes without saying. So where would we go? Well, we would go to chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, because this is the beginning of the section of Romans 3.21 through the end of 5, which is all about justification, which is just a theological term for getting accepted by God. That's all it is. So this explains it. And we're going to talk about that, but chapter 4 is all about faith. 
So faith in the saving work of Christ. So let's pick it up in verses 6 through 8. Because they're talking about how we get accepted. It says this. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Then he quotes an abbreviated form of Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. So, what does this mean? Well, it means that if you get your sins paid for, you achieve the righteousness of God. So now we understand a bit more what that means. It is perfection. That the Father cannot accept us if we are not perfect. Simple as that. Can't accept us. And the way we get perfection is to have all of our sins paid for by Jesus on the cross. So if we get our sins paid for, we get a status with God. That is, our record is clean. And if our record is clean, by definition, we are righteous. And if we're righteous, then we're accepted. Because we have then achieved... The righteousness of God, not on the basis of what we do. We're saved by faith in the work of what Jesus does on the cross by his death. When he satisfies the wrath of the Father, he pays for all of our sin, past, present, and future. Stop for a moment. Questions about that? Because you don't really think about salvation in terms of achieving the righteousness of God. We don't. But actually, biblically, that's exactly what they're talking about. Okay, turn with me. Let's go to a couple places and flesh this out a bit. Hebrews chapter 10. Now, when you ask the question, where in we go in the Bible for the clearest statement of the cross, you typically would think of book of Romans, but that's wrong. It's the book of Hebrews. And within the book of Hebrews, the place... That is the climactic statement about the cross is Hebrews chapter 10, the first 18 verses. And that's where we're going to look at verses 11 through 18. We're going to focus on, in particular, verse 14. Now it says this, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Now, this is the context. Jesus is our high priest. Remember that a priest, unlike a prophet, a prophet represents God to the people. So God talks to the prophet, prophet tells us what God said. So he represents God. Whereas a priest represents people to God. So, he re- so for those whom he represents, the priest offers a sacrifice. And if that sacrifice is accepted, then he secures something for those whom he represents. In this context, they're talking about Jesus is our high priest. So he represents all those whom the Father chose to save in eternity past. He offers his life, his death on the cross, and he secures forgiveness of sin for those whom he represents. That's that's what happens. So he says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. He's referring to the old covenant priests, the Israelites, that is, you know, the tribe of Levi, the family of Aaron, the males, 30, 50 years old, under the old covenant, those priests. Okay. He says, he offers the same sacrifices, that is the Aaronic priest, which can never take away sins, because the old covenant is just a picture. That's all it is. It's a picture. It doesn't do anything. It's just a, it's just a, it's an, Israel's an unbelieving picture of the people of God, The sacrifices don't do anything, they just illustrate. So if you're relying upon them to truly take away your sin, God is not pleased with you at all. So he says this, but when this priest, of course that's Jesus, had sacrificed for, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, of course that's sort of like a, Middle Eastern concept, when you sit down, you rule, that kind of a thing. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For, this is the verse, for by one sacrifice, of course, that's the cross, he has made 
perfect forever those who are being made holy. Depending on your translation, sometimes we'll use the word sanctified, but all means the same thing. Because we know that because verses 15 to 18 provide the commentary on verse 14. So verses 15 to 18 say this. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. Okay, well, that's the commentary. First, he says, he's going to quote Jeremiah 31 in abbreviated form. This is the covenant that I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. Of course, the new covenant is the work of Christ on the cross. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, the sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary because Christ pays for sins once and for all. And, of course, the concept is he rises from the dead, ascends into heaven, which means that what he did on the cross then will apply to those whom he represents for all eternity because he's alive and he reigns for all eternity. That's the idea. But when it describes the forgiveness of sins in verse 14, it uses the phrase, he has made perfect forever. That's the phrase. Now, that sounds like law-keeping phrase, let's be honest. But in the context, it's not remotely talking about law-keeping. He's talking about getting your sins paid for by the death of Jesus on the cross. But the death of Jesus on the cross secures for you and me this status with God, as though we have perfectly obeyed. But we haven't, but, we've had, but we did have Jesus pay for every last sin. And once again, if he pays for every last sin, you have a clean record. And if you have a clean record, you are righteous. And if you're righteous, you have achieved the righteousness of God. You are unconditionally accepted for all eternity. And this is our most precious truth as a believer, to be unconditionally accepted. As we are God lovers as believers, but we're imperfect God lovers. We grow, but we're battling with sin till we die. We bear fruit. We persevere. But it's always imperfect. If I, could, if I could muster up pure motives, that would be amazing. But I can't. I'm trying to get better at it. But I, there is not that moment of purity in me when my motives are you know, absolutely clean. They're not. You know, there's those lurking thoughts that I want you to think I'm a good teacher. And you know, I, I wish I could shake that. That's not true. It's always sort of there, lurking in the background. Question so far about this. Question. So this is justification. This is how God's, everything that God has against us is satisfied. And this is how we get accepted. This is the most basic thing in the faith. Question. Yes. I'm like somebody in the Old Testament of, kind of when they were sacrificed and for, for the sins of the priest, how about they have look forward to, to Christ or, or do you think that they realized that in the as as they were as the priest was sacrificed and that it, it didn't take away the sin it covered it right I mean how did they ah uh, you put those words in my mouth you said the sacrifices cover the sin right wrong but let's look at it that's a great question, because that's something we all kind of ask. Uh, let's look at verses, the previous section of Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 10. Well, we'll pick it up in verse 8, because it repeats 5 through 7. First, he said, talking about the work of Christ, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. Okay though they were offered in accordance with the law, the Mosaic law. They're required by God, but then he says he's not pleased with them. What does he mean? It says, then he said, here I am, I've come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. His point is, now, remember the context of the book of Hebrews, which is important. You got these guys who were professing believers, but Jewish. They're experiencing lots of persecution for their faith. 
and now it seems to avoid further persecution, they are at least seriously contemplating turning their back on the source of persecution, which is the cross, the new covenant, and going back under the old covenant, trying to get forgiveness of sins from the old covenant sacrifices. And the author of Hebrews says, if that's what you're going to try to do, God is not pleased with you. Why? Because the sacrifices in the nation of Israel under the Mosaic law did not do anything. Because if you go up a little further, in verse 4, it says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible. Why? Because sin is so serious. Do you really think, you know, just killing a heifer is going to satisfy what a holy God has against you? I mean, our sin is so serious. But it does provide an illustration. And that's what it does. Now, as soon as you say that, you should think about, oh, there's a question in the back? Oh, I just detect. I can, I can just sense it with my inner spirit that this is not going to be a good question. Yes? Is it, is it possible sometimes that um, in our attempt to explain what you've just said, is it possible we may overstate part of what is said in Leviticus about the sacrifices? And I'm not equating that with the sacrifice of Christ, because the Hebrew writer is really clear on that. This takes care of sin for all time. But in the Leviticus accounts, when it talks about the sacrifices, it, it does specify that they will be forgiven for this sin. You are, you are a step ahead. Sorry. No, 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 no. You, that's because you don't... Uh, no, you're, that's absolutely correct. So turn to Leviticus chapter 4, because that's where we, we were going to go. Leviticus chapter 4. Now, Leviticus 4 is a grocery list of particular sins that can be done. And, and then what's the appropriate sacrifice for the particular sin? Okay, so let's, let's just read one, and we're going to read it verses 22 to 26. This is just, they're all this, basically the same as far as what they end up saying. So this says, when a leader sins unintentionally. Now, but we should note that under the Mosaic Law, with regard to sacrifice, there is only sacrifice for sins for unintentional sins. There is no sacrifice for intentional sins. You are cooked. That's the way it goes. Now, we can talk about that, but about the implications of that, but for our purposes now, we're not going to do that. But that's just want to point that out to you. So, if any member of the community sins unintentionally, or when a leader sins unintentionally, and does what is forbidden in any of the commands of the Lord his God, When he realizes his guilt and the sin he has committed becomes known, he must bring as his offering a male goat without defect. He is to lay his hand on the goat's head. That's when you recite the sin. You're transferring guilt from you to the goat. That's the idea. And slaughter it at the place where the burnt offering is slaughtered before the Lord. It is a sin offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. He shall burn all the fat on the altar. Because even God, you know, we don't eat the fat. (laughs) No, I won't go into that. My mother liked fat. I didn't like fat. Jack Spratt. You can, you can finish it up. He shall burn all the fat on the altar as he burned the fat of the fellowship offering. In this way, this is, the, this is the verse. In this way, the priest will make atonement for the leader's sin and he will be forgiven. No, read my lips. He will be forgiven. Well, but Hebrews 10 says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So how do we bring these two together? Because it's God's word. There can be no true contradiction. We know that. Well, Israel is an unbelieving picture of the people of God. They're a temporary unbelieving picture. They get replaced 
by a spiritual Israel, which is mostly Gentiles, a little bit of Jews, who have new hearts and their sins paid for. That's the cross. But this says they are forgiven. In what sense are they forgiven? That's the question. In what sense? And that is ceremonially. And what do I mean by that? That is, if an Israelite, because most all of them were unbelievers, except for a remnant, if they c- commit a sin, like the, a leader here in verse 22, okay, if he does the required sacrifice, he is restored in good standing to the nation of Israel. He's restored, but not to the God of Israel. Because the blood of bulls and ghosts doesn't take away sins. But this is a picture. Because Israel is not even the real people of God anyway. They're just a temporary unbelieving picture. They are replaced in God's plan. They are replaced by people that actually love him. And of course, that's what we are as believers. You are an incurable God lover who has your sins paid for. You are the result of the new covenant, the work of Christ on the cross. So anybody who was a real believer before the cross, of course, experiences the benefits of the cross like David, like Abraham, because those are the two examples in Romans chapter 4. You know, they were saved. It's the credit card analogy. You know, you pay your, you eat your meal, you digest it, you pay for it 23 to 30 days later. Okay? But it's already gone. It's already passed through the system. Well, that's the way it works, is that God determines everything in eternity past, and if if he's chosen to save you, by the death of Christ at a certain point in time, everything is fixed. So you can get the result of the cross ahead of time. Fact is, if we go, if we went back to Romans three, it, it will explain that. But question. Yeah, just following with Lee's question. Is that yes. <clears throat> it feels like what you're describing is clear in retrospect. Correct. For the people that were following Leviticus. <laughs> what would they? Th- it wasn't clear to them in the way you described it in no. no, it would not have been clear at all. So it's not like there was some guy in a cave that was, I, I got it, I can just tell everybody. No. It's, it's kind of clear it wasn't. No. If all we had was the Old Testament, I would think that the sacrifices of the Mosaic Law actually did something. I would think so. Because Israel's unbelieving, God only gave them that amount of knowledge that they needed to know. Because they weren't going to believe anyways. Actually, the time for believing doesn't kick in until Pentecost. Yes, there's believers before. There's always a remnant of believers from the beginning on. But it wasn't the time for believing. We, we struggle. We talked about this yesterday. We struggle figuring out what was even the gospel in the Old Testament. We don't know. Like David is a believer, but we don't know how he became a believer We just know he is a believer because that's not the time for believing. But once Pentecost kicks in, now it's obvious. How how do you become a believer? How do you know you're a believer? What's the evidence of a believer? What happens to a believer? That's, That's simple. But it's not clear before that. It's just not clear because it's not the time. Yes? Are you saying in verse 26 that we should interpret that last phrase as he shall be forgiven by the people, not by God? Yes, exactly. That is in God's... This is, well, there's a sense in, you would say it, it is by God, but it, it, it's sort of like uh, Israel itself. They, are, they were chosen by God as, out of all the nations. They were chosen. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 and 7 says that. Very commonplace to go. So they were chosen. They were his people, the people of God. In what sense? They they had special nation status with God. That's true. That the Gentile nations did not have. But salvation wasn't part of it. Salvation wasn't part of it because they get destroyed. You and I... As believers, we sin, but God never is going to be angry with us because he poured out his angry on Jesus in our place on the cross. So whatever he does to us is motivated by his love for us. Whatever he does, he's never angry with us for all eternity. 
because Christ has satisfied that on the cross for all eternity for us, if we are a real believer. So it's the, so no no. There was a I think a really good explanation of this yesterday, but of course you weren't there. So we you know that's God's plan. That's too bad. But no. So I, I recognize that I'm saying something that needs. Uh, a bit, bit of biblical explanation to establish, and that's fair. But we don't have that time today. That's the way it goes. But it's a good point. The tapes will be available. The tapes will be available. How about that? It'll be available. Yeah, it, it's a long... 78 RPA, yeah. This is, this is why I, I love to come here. Cutting edge is just, you know... This is what we do. Okay. So, see, she's even, she's not satisfied with this answer either. (laughs) Okay, so that's the explanation. Okay, so from the old to the new picture, fulfillment, the cross versus old covenant sacrifices. If you're relying on old covenant sacrifices to take away your sins, God is, it says in Hebrews 10, he's not happy with you. He's not, because they can't take away sin. Not, they don't satisfy the wrath of God. They don't do that. Okay, that seems to be pretty straightforward. Okay, if we go back to Romans chapter 3, if, there's another, if I miss an, a hand, someone just yelled to me, you know, where to look. Okay. Over here. Over, oh, I, I still don't see it. No. Okay. Uh, the thing that you read from Leviticus, is it safe to say that's much like what we would call restoration? Yes. So they were restored in, in good, to good standing in the nation of Israel. Because it, it's functioning as a picture. Functioning as a picture. But if you're talking about the real people of God, those who've had their hearts changed, okay, a spiritual Israel, that's not how it works. But it does with the picture. Does with the picture. And so we, we need to make that distinction. The time of the Old Covenant era with Israel from Mount Sinai to the cross, that's a time of the picture preparing for the Messiah. We, from Pentecost to second coming, we are in the time of fulfillment when, uh, when now we're seeing the fruit of the death of Christ on the cross. He has a people from every tribe, nation, tongue. He's collecting up through the Great Commission. And where every one of us has sins forgiven and a new heart. We are incurable God lovers. You know, so that's, that's the big picture of what's happening, at least from my point of view. Okay? Now, if we go back to Romans chapter 3, just to read on a little farther, because just to get this before us, verse 22, this righteousness, this perfection is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, which is true. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ. He secured our acceptance by securing our perfection, by paying for our sins. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, or use the old term propitiation, which we don't really use today, but it means the same. Sacrifice, sacrifice, it, it satisfies the, you know, the wrath of God. It satisfies it. It, it, it pays for sin. And that's what a sacrifice does. It, that, it is propitiation. That's what it does. Through the shedding of his blood. So Jesus had to suffer and die to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. That is God's standard. His standard is perfection. He he doesn't grade on a curve. It's all or nothing. So we have nothing to contribute except our sin. That's the idea. Then you pick it up. He goes, so God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because... This is the point, in his forbearance, at least this is how the NIV does it, in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. 
What does that mean? He's referring to someone who's a believer before the cross. The sin was Jesus had not died. But the Abbot, yeah, but sin is paid for. The credit card analogy, sin is paid for by the cross to come. That's David, Abraham are the two examples in Romans 4. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. Because, remember, righteousness never changes. They still have to, David had to achieve this perfection. He had to have his sins perfectly paid for or he couldn't be a believer. That's, God doesn't lower the standards ever. And so, that he, so as to be just, God is just, and the one who justifies, Jesus justifies, those who have faith in Jesus. You know, he's just and he justifies. His standard is perfection, but he's provided a way to achieve it so that we can be accepted unconditionally. That's the idea. Then he says, where then is boasting? It is excluded because we don't do anything. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, but because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. It has nothing to do with law keeping. Even though the language of achieving the righteousness of God is that we have been made perfect forever. The language sounds like law keeping language, but it's referring to that amazing forgiveness of sin, which achieves for us the status of perfection, which we would achieve if we obeyed the law perfectly. But of course, we can't do that. But so Jesus achieves for us the righteousness of God. Of course, he has the righteousness of God. He is God who became man. He obeyed the law perfectly. So he achieved righteousness because of his law keeping as the man, Christ Jesus. We achieve, achieve it because he goes to the cross and he pays for our sin, as it is described in Romans 4, 6 through 8, where the righteousness of God is tied to forgiveness of sins. That's how we get it. Okay? Questions? Yes? So, going back to the, the scripture says that in his forbearance he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. Yes. Um, I'm not from this background. <laughs> so I uh um, so being converted, but I'm not from Calvin's background. I've always understood that in the past that God left the sins of Israel unpunished until Christ, being the entire nation. But based on what you said yesterday and, and what you hinted at today about Israel as a whole is a picture of an unbelieving people. Right, their remnants are believers. So this is really this isn't saying that he left the sins of Israel, the nation, unpunished. Yes. He left the sins of the remnant unpunished from. Yes, to, yes, uh, yes. You 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 heard well. That you it's, that was a great description. Uh, yes, that's the point. That is the point because he. He had no intention of saving Israel. No, it's because every one of them were rebellious. They didn't want to be saved except for the remnant. They didn't want to be saved. But his plan, a la Isaiah chapter 6, he said he reveals it. I'm going to keep them from believing. Because their role is a temporary unbelieving picture. That's their role. I mean, we talk, now that doesn't sound very pleasant. But let's be honest, uh, just take me. I mean, Steve alluded I was a German background with a little bit of French thrown in, you know, the baguette side. But my mother's side is all Irish. They're all drunk, so that's that side. But as far as I know, I come from a large Roman Catholic family. I went to Catholic school. As far as I know, I was the first believer in our family line. But, you know, I had to, for me to be here, I had to have this long genealogy of drunken Irish guys and you know strict German guys that kill a lot, but they do it orderly. That's my background. They had to be there. They weren't believers, but they were absolutely necessary for me to be here. Now, I don't deserve anything. I was no different than them. But for some reason, he decided 
to grant me the gift of faith, to choose me and grant me the gift of faith in spite of me, which I'm terribly thankful for. Okay, But so, in a sense, that's like Israel. So the, all of these generations before me in my family line were absolutely essential in God's plan to save me, just like you. It's just, it wasn't for their benefit. And we know we're no different. We know it's not, we're not special in and of ourselves. We were God-haters. But he, for some reason, he decided to choose us. We're just terribly thankful that he did. Well, that's what Israel, that's their role, was to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. They were to provide the picture to illustrate. He just chose not to save them, except for a remnant. He just chose not to. You know, just like in mine, my grandparents, my parents, not believers. They're dead now. My grandparents, not believers. They were great grandparents. My parents, you know, were very caring, but not believers. That's, that's my family line. So I think that helps understand it a bit, because otherwise there's a tendency to think that if we say Israel's, like their role in God's plan was to illustrate he has no intention of saving them, that just sounds so strong. But it's true. But it's true. And once you personalize it and look at your own family line and where you fit in, all of a sudden it's not so harsh. You know, it's, oh, I'm glad he did it that way. So at least I could be saved in spite of me. That's wonderful. So that's the idea. Question about that. So I'm not minimizing the emotional sort of difficulty that that truth kind of raises up within us. I understand that. But the question is, is it biblical? There's a lot of things in the Bible that when I first read them, my emotions can not exactly sympathetic with God. And you just have to, after a while, you just bow the knee. Lord, whatever you do is right. If there's a problem, it's me. You know, sin is affecting my thinking process. I'm in danger of thinking I'm holier than you, which is really bad. You know, so you just say, whatever you do is right. End of discussion. You know, so then I'm a difficult person to talk to. Because that's true. That's true. Whatever God does is right. I don't care what it looks like. That's the way it works. If you have a complaint, take it up with him. Everybody's going to bow the knee. Whether you're going to hell or heaven, there, there will be a time. Yes. There's a, is there a hand go up? I missed. Yes. And the words of R.C. what is wrong with you people? Yeah. <laughs> R.C.'s, that's, I, I, as a believer, uh, as a believer, I grew up with R.C. in the area, so he was like a patron saint. <laughs> but, but the thought is, it's not like, oh, God is so mean. You know, it's like, how did he save any of us? Right? It's not like, oh, we're so great. No. Yeah, we're... But the amazing thing is that he saved any of us. Okay. Yeah, in 1 Corinthians 1, it, it describes the people he saved are not the creme a la creme of society. <laughs> Hate to remind you of that. When I went to Penn State for orientation, okay, I go to State College, orientation, you're sitting down with a counselor. He, he said a phrase to me that I've never forgotten my entire life, and I'm an old guy now. He said I was average. It was devastating. <laughs> Told me the truth, but it was, I was average. For someone coming into Pe- Pennsylvania State University, I was an average student. Well, you know, Scripture says that's the kind of people he saves. But then he changes us. He gifts us. He equips us. He changes us. He gives each of us a unique part to play in his plan that nobody else can occupy. We are now children of the king. But we don't bring a lot to the table originally. We don't. But he makes us into somebody. He does. He does. And... You know, when I grew up, I had a horrendous problem of stuttering. I did. I couldn't give a phrase out without stuttering. Until I became a believer. And when I stood up to, when I began to teach, because that's what I do, all of a sudden it went away. And yet, and yet all of my life in high school, I would dread 
having to recite something. I would dread it because I couldn't get a sentence out without it. Yes? I just wanted to add it. We saved people that were already so equipped, so well, you know, well fit for everything, then it wouldn't display its powers. You are so correct. That's what it's all about. No, you're right. Because we are a testimony to how great he is, not how great we are. Okay, close. Uh, I want to hit the last line of Romans 3.31. And, of course, he's reminding us that everything is by faith. But verse 31 says, Do we then, because this is a difficult passage for people normally to understand, do we then nullify the the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. So what does that mean? Well, it's in the context He's revealed justification, that is, the way we get accepted is the cross. Jesus pays for everything. That has nothing to do with law-keeping. But is this method of salvation that is revealed to us here, does that method take seriously the demands of the law? Because the law demand, God's law demands perfection. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. Okay? Well, this is the only method... That takes it seriously. Because Jesus secures for us this righteousness of God, this perfection, so that when God describes us as believers, we are those who have been made perfect forever. Hebrews 10, 14. Oh. So as a Roman Catholic, you know, Jesus gets you into the club by your baptism. And then you play with the sacraments to kind of get there the rest of the way. And obviously, Jesus is only God. He can only do so much. So when you die, you have to go to purgatory, which is like hell with an exit door. And eventually, after you pay up what you owe, because Jesus is going to do so much, then eventually you make it to heaven. Well, the problem is, is that you're... The good, you know, the good works I did... Now, don't get the idea that I was a thoughtful Catholic. I went to Catholic school, Mass never ended, but I can't remember a single thought toward God during my Catholic sojourn. I, I, I may have, but I can't remember a single thought toward God. I was not troubled by my sin as a Catholic. I never thought it through, so that meant, well, I'm supposed to contribute my good works plus the work of Jesus, and somehow, in some mystical fashion, it all is going to work out, I'm going to finally make it. But everything I did was never perfectly good. So Romans 3 says, no one does good, no, not one, as an unbeliever. Because we never do anything with a perfect motive for the right reason. We don't. So everything we do as an unbeliever is sin. Everything. Whoa. Well, if so, if, if I'm relying on the quality of my works, plus the work of Christ, bunch it all together to be accepted to achieve the righteousness of God. This is a fool's errand. It's not going to work. But do you think a Catholic ever thinks about this? No. No, they don't. They don't. That's why it's just another way to hell. So, that is what I think it means. That this method of acceptance is the only method. That's why Jesus is the only way. It's the only method that really satisfies the demands of God's law. And his law demands perfection. Or you're condemned eternally. Okay? Now, we're just about done, but now Steve will cringe because he knows I'm going to go this direction. Uh, There is a competing view of justification. A competing view. It comes from covenant theology. Of course, I used to be a Presbyterian pastor. I jumped through all the hoops, and there's a lot of hoops to jump through being a Presbyterian pastor. And the idea is, when I was in seminary, as a long time ago now, they used to be ridiculed, this phrase. There used to be a, uh, a popular phrase regarding justification. It's just as if I had never sinned. Just as if. Jesus pays for my sins on the cross, so I'm accepted, so it's just like I'd never sinned. And that was ridiculed. Because 
Getting your sins paid for by Jesus on the cross, according to covenant theology or the Westminster Confession of Faith, is not enough. Not enough. That won't get you there. That only gets you to square one. Now, how do you get eternal life? You're forgiven, but how do you get eternal life? Ah, now you need something else. And that is... Jesus has to perfectly obey the law in your place. That is what earns you eternal life. Any reform book on justification will tell you that. So the emphasis is really not on the ends up not being on the cross, but it's on the law keeping of Jesus. So I want just to spend a few minutes before we close to say that that is not biblical. The guys who hold it are wonderful believers. That's not the point. But this robs the cross of its glory. Says it's not sufficient. And it is. That's why when you celebrate the Lord's Supper around the meal, the Lord's Supper is all about the cross. It's not about the law-keeping of Jesus. It's the cross. Now, we know Jesus had to obey the law perfectly to qualify to be our substitute on the cross. He had to be a lamb without blemish. That's, we, everybody buys that. But that's not what saves us. That simply qualified him to be our substitute. What saves us is his death when he achieves for us the righteousness of God by paying for our sins. So you say, where does this come from? Ah, comes from the Garden of Eden. You didn't know that, I'm sure, but that's because you, weren't, you didn't have the eyes of faith. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 2 very quickly. And let's read verses 15 through 17 of Genesis 2. This was during the Garden Tour. And it says, The Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. You will certainly die. So the warning is, you, you know, you can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's it. Okay, well, obviously Adam and Eve ate from the tree, and they... They began to die. They died spiritually, began to die physically, all of that stuff. But that's not so much our concern. That's pretty straightforward. We are, we know from Romans 5, we'll, we'll be there in a second, that we are blamed for Adam's first sin. We're blamed for it. We're blamed for something we did not do. And that can only be true if God owns everything. It's his world. He just said that's the way it's going to be, and that's the way it is. I'm blamed for something I did not do. So I come into the world with a bad record. I'm already condemned, and because of that, I have a bad heart. I am a God-hater. I am rebellious when I come in. And if anybody doubts that, obviously you've not had children. (laughs) The purest form of sin is in little God-haters, whom we love unbelievably. But they are the the cutest little God-haters, but, see, they don't even attempt to hide it. What are we talking about? We're talking about learning the art of civility. We learn, what is the art of civility? How to get along with sinful people in this world. How to get along. So, great Aunt Bessie shows up at the house. Three-year-old points at her. Bad breath. Everybody knows Bessie has bad breath. Everybody knows. But we don't say something. Why? We want to be considerate. We don't want to embarrass her. So we don't say that. But is the little three-year-old correct? Absolutely. I mean, Bessie's breath will knock you over. But you, or your face is funny. Well, you do, you do look a little strange. But we don't say that. We, so we learn how to develop the art of lying to get through life. You know, what is it that... Uh, There's been movies about this. If you're being forced to tell the truth, you'd never have a friend, never have a job if you just told the truth at every turn. And so becoming a believer, that's one of the radical 
side things to becoming a believer, we're commanded to tell the truth in love, but tell the truth. That is a difficult proposition to walk through this life and obey that. That's tough. That really is tough. But that's digressing a bit. So we have that we're blamed for Adam's first sin. Got that. That's pretty simple. Romans 5, we'll look at that in a moment. 1 Corinthians 15, those are the places that tell you that. It's just black and white. But you may not have seen it, but Adam was also, he also represented us in a second sense. He put all of us under obligation to perfectly keep God's law. You may ask, I I thought I missed that. The truth is, there is no place in Scripture that says that. That is a theological necessity of covenant theology in their understanding of justification. So you may not have seen it, but it's there. You say, whoa. They say it's the garden. This This is not disputed. I mean, any Reformed systematic theology, and I'm a Calvinist with a big C, because I explained to you guys yesterday, I'm the only person in the state of Arizona who has a license plate that says TULIP. <laughs> the five points of Calvinism. But I'm not covenant theology. I'm new covenant theology. So, where do, so how does this work? How do they defend this? Well, let's turn to Romans chapter 5. Questions as we go. Is there a question? Okay. Romans chapter 5, it's 12 through 21. We're going to focus on verses 18 and 19, because this is the section that talks about original sin. And 18 and 19 are the climax of the argument. It's not very difficult. They're comparing the work of Adam with the work of Jesus. Okay, that's the whole idea. It's an argument of symmetry, Adam, Christ. So verse 18 says, Consequently, just as one trespass, that's Adam's sin in the garden, resulted in condemnation for all people, because he represented. Now, technically, is that true without qualification? We talked about this yesterday. Is that true? Adam represented all people. It's a trick question. No. What person did he not represent? Yeah, Jesus. He didn't represent. Jesus didn't have original sin. But everybody else did. Okay, so, all, so really, it's technically all within a group. All within a group. Okay, uh, Romans 5, he says, so, so then he says, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all men. Well, that's the act, it's the cross. That's the idea. It's one sin of Adam one act of Jesus, it says it resulted in justification and life for all people, that is, all those whom he represented, which is the elect, just as Adam is all those whom he represented, everybody but Jesus. Yeah, that's the idea. Now, verse 19, though, says this. For, says the same thing in different words. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, well, that makes sense, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The obedience, ah, the law-keeping of Christ, that's where it's found. No, we're not interested. For example, in Adam, the one sin of Adam, I'm sure he committed a bucket load of other sins, just like you and me, but we're not interested in that. That's irrelevant. We're only talking about the one sin, the first sin that Adam did. And verse 18 says the one act of Christ. That's the argument. It's parallel. The symmetry. Act of Adam, act of Jesus. So he talks about verse 19. For just as through the disobedience of the one man. We're only talking about the disobedience of the one sin. That's it. So also through the obedience of the one man. It's the same thing. We're only talking about the cross. His act of obedience on the cross. That's all this is about. We're not talking about the rest of Jesus' life. He was perfect. He was God who became man. 
But that's not what saves us. That's not what saves us. It's the cross that saves us. This is the proof text. There, is, there really is no other verse. This is it. That view lives or dies on Romans 5.19. And it's, they just miss it. They just miss it. One more place, because we need to wrap this up, is in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Talking about the reconciliation that we get, we are made right with God. It says, verse 21, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us. He took upon our sin. That's true. So that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. And this is a proof text for the law keeping Christ. You go, no, it's not. Because Romans 4, 6 through 8 tells us the righteousness of God is that perfection that we get because Jesus paid for our sin. I mean, it's just black and white. You're just reading into something that it's not there. And you may think, oh, there's probably a bunch of other scriptures. No, no, we're about all out. We're about all out. That's it. So we do get the righteousness of God through the work of Jesus Christ. Absolutely true. But it has nothing to do with his law keeping. That's not what saves us. His death. It's his death. And then the last place would be Romans 8, which I really appreciate reading Romans 8. Go to verses 3 and 4. Romans 8, 3 and 4. It says, For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh. The law cannot save. That's just not possible. Because we, we can't keep it. God did. Well, how did God do it? By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. That's the cross thing. Now it says, And so He condemned sin in the flesh, which He did, in order, this is the, the verse, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That is, the cross of Jesus fulfills the righteous requirement of the law. What is the righteous requirement of the law? Perfection. You've got to be perfect. Well, remember Hebrews 10.14, by the cross... You get a status with God such that you are described as having been made perfect. But he's only talking about the cross. So this idea that the cross is not sufficient to save you is not true. It is. Everything we have as a believer is tied to the cross. That's that's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. We don't celebrate the law-keeping of Christ because that didn't save us. We separate his death. So what we've done, we've just surveyed one of the most basic truths of the Christian life. But there's a bit more to it as we walk through it. But at the end of the day, it is just amazing. We are unconditionally accepted by the Father for all eternity because of the cross. And that means we're home free. He's never going to be disgusted with you. He's never going to roll his eyes at you when you have to start over again in an area of your life, which we do. His, everything that happens to us is motivated by his love for us. Everything. There is no exception. It is an amazing privilege to be a child of the king. And we ultimately had nothing to do with it. Let's pray. Father, just thank you. That for some reason that we do not know, you have brought us to yourself, all because of the work of your Son on the cross. So thank you. And we do love you. Amen. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship, reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.